Hello and welcome to Man on the Clapham Omnibus Sport Review. Today I'm going to do a podcast about drafting an ideal English top division. And this comes from a freewheeling discussion at Friday Night Drinks a couple of weeks ago with the Chelsea boys, my two friends, Rob and Bev. We, it really started from enjoying that Leeds United, one of the sort of giants of English football, was back in the Premier League. They finally got promoted after sort of 20 years away. And it really stemmed from if you had to pick, if you had to draft an ideal top division of the biggest, the best, the most interesting football teams, if you really had to, to sum up English football at, at its best, which teams would you put in there for a you know, historical achievement, for recent achievement, for meaning? So the key question is really how many teams should it hold? So the old first division, when we talk about the English Football League, when you have divisions one, two, three, four, or do we go with the Premier League, where it's now twenty? The thing is, when the Premier League started in sort of ninety-two, it was twenty-four teams, with the idea that eventually it would work its way down to twenty, because that was deemed the ideal. Because when the FA got involved in this, and so moved it away from the Football League, which is a completely separate organisation. You know, the FA are the umbrella organisation that run all of football. The idea was is that eventually, maybe from 20, the IM go down to 18 or 16. The idea was that it would benefit the English national team, which didn't really happen. The idea was that, you know, you would have this wonderful Premier League, that would help Euro 96, which England were hosting, would host help the national team but eventually it, it spiralled out of control and really the clubs took over and they decided 20 was the best so in other words you had the best advantage in terms of European football you had the money and obviously half the teams in the league weren't going to you know like Turkey's voting for Thanksgiving and Christmas and so you had one season in 94-95 where there was only where there were 22 teams four teams went down to eventually get to the magic number of 20. And I suppose you could choose 22 teams as a compromise between the, the modern Premier League and the old school First Division. But the more I looked into it, I, I think in the, end, the best way of doing it would really to do an ideal Premier League. So you just took, as if, you know, the, the idea of the eopophallication of English football. If you had to just take from 92 onwards, what 20 teams would you put into the Premier League? And then do a separate one, which would be 24, which would be you know, the history of English football. I think the question is that I, when I was coming up with this list, would be, would a Premiership-only list look radically different? And it did, in in a way. It, you know, there was the decline of East Midlands football in the 21st century, so you're talking really about Derby and Nottingham Forest. You, you had the element of new money, you know, with Middlesbrough really coming out of, sort of nowhere with the money of Steve Gibson. But I think what it comes down to is that the, the Premier League is more of a narrative-based list. You know, is what have you done for me? What have you done lately? In other words, you could sit there and there were some teams in the early 90s that, you know, had some success, you know, Coventry before going down, and who have, since they went down in sort of 2000, 2001, have never looked likely that they were ever going to come back. You know, they've only just reached back into the championship after a long spell in, you know, League 2, League 1, whereby 
the historical one, the Football League Top 24, it's more of what have you contributed, you know, to the you know to the canon, what you know, relative to your size, relative to what you could have given. I mean, we have to always remember that the the Premier League is built on the bedrock of the English Football League. All those years of 24 teams, all that history. If you look at all of the the charter members of the Premier League were already, were already established as giants of the English game. Prior to that, prior to 1992, you know, day one, there was already some massive football teams, which in the last, you know, 25 plus years, have remained massive and have even just got bigger. So, let's really, to get down to 20 teams for the, the Premier League only list, is that you have three main groups. You have your charter members, your second life teams, and then your single life teams. Now, the charter members is fairly self-explanatory. It is the best of the best. So, in all of these seven teams, none of them have ever been relegated. You know, in fact, the only demerit that you can give is that Chelsea lose a point, effectively, for not being a founder member of the Premier League, for then having to get promoted into it. You know, you've had a situation where, you know, where six out of the seven teams, you know, have either competed for the league title or they won the title. You know, three have won, you know, the European Cup Winners' Cup is now defunct. Three have won the Champions League. Two have been losing finalists. Three have won the Europa League. I mean, if you take the weakest member of the group, Everton, they've still won silverware. They, you know, 95 FA Cup against Manchester United. You know, they've qualified for the Champions League by their league position. They've never been relegated. They've even got to the latter stage of the Europa League. Now, obviously, you know that on this list, you're going to have Manchester United Self-explanatory, Man City with the money that's come in. And I should probably add a caveat that, yes, Matt, you could argue that Man City got relegated, but that is the Manchester City that used to be. You know, I think really, if you're going to be honest about this, the Manchester City that, as they are now under you know, the Abu Dhabi regime ownership group, they're just not going to get relegated. They're not even realistically going to get anywhere near to finish in a double digit, you know, they're not going to finish 10th, 11th, so really, yes, you can say historically Man City were relegated, but as it is, as the Premier League now stands, Man City, they're, they're two separate entities, the Man City of previous, they were, you know, they could go up, they could finish in the top 10, but that's not really where Man City stand right now, Man City have virtually no chance of relegation, as do Man United, as does Liverpool, you know, and then you've got obviously the London clubs with Spurs, Arsenal, Chelsea. Everton have been really the only one over this sort of whole period of since ninety two that have had really ever had a threat of proper threat of relegation. They've had a couple of near misses in the mid nineties, the late nineties, one year where they had to get Kevin Campbell back on loan from Trabzonspor in Turkey and he scored yeah, sort of eight, nine goals to keep them up. For the last game of the season, Graham Stewart scored a winner against Everton that kept them up. But really, in the modern, you know, as it stands right now, you know, none of those teams in the last 5, 10, 15 years have got anywhere close to being in a relegation scrap. You know, they're all successful. They've all... I mean, the only team that you can argue that you know, wasn't 
already a complete giant before the start of the Premier League was Chelsea. But even then, they'd won the league in 55. They'd you know, won the cup. They'd had success in Europe in different decades. And, you know, they were on the way back. And there was always that potentiality with Chelsea. Which then moves on to the, the second life teams. All of the teams on this list have been relegated and had to come back. And they've always had two differing periods of success. You know, and that's been punctuated by relegation. So, you know, if you take West Ham, you know, they finished fifth under Harry Redknapp. That was when it was the period of time when they're developing Joe Cole, Rio Ferdinand, Frank Lampard, and that, that disastrous relegation in the early 2000s. But then you've had the, you know, their rebirth when, you know, Pardew took him into the you know, top nine. They reached the cup final. They've had, you know, intermittent periods of success under Slav and Bilic. So they're kind of your classic example of a second life team. Yes, they can go down, but they've had two different spells, two, three different spells of success in the Premier League. You know, with Newcastle, you, you had the Keegan years. You even under Pardew, they finished fifth. They got to the quarterfinals of the Europa League. You know, with Leicester, they had the Martin O'Neill years, which at the time people considered the glory years. Finally, Leicester were going to Wembley and actually winning something. So they won the League Cup twice. And then obviously you have the Ranieri, where they you know, won the league in this amazing circumstances. And even now you've had, you know, the, the rebirth of that team under, you know, Brendan Rodgers and nearly qualifying for the Champions League. You know, with Southampton, they had the sort of the Letitia years where they were survivors, often reaching mid-table unexpectedly. You know, and that's sort of just at the end of Letitia and then moving into St. Mary's Stadium. They then reached a cup final and went down. They had to spend a few years in League One and really had the rebirth, you know, where they, you know, the youth development out of necessity, but also the fact that they were very good at it. You know, developed Gareth Bale, you know, you had Theo Walcott, Oxley Chamberlain. And then you when they got back to the Premier League, it started the Pochettino era. You had the Coman era. And there's sort of another period of time where Southampton were constantly sort of finishing in the top six, qualifying for Europe through their league position. They developed, you know, Virgil van Dijk, Sadio Mane. You know, at one point it felt like they really were just Liverpool's feeder team. You've had Leeds who who are finally now you know rejoining you know the second life teams. You know in the early nineties, obviously they were the last league winners before it turned into the Premier League. They had some success under Howard Wilkinson, and they reached the League Cup final in nineteen ninety six against Villa, and they lost it three 0 And then you had the you know, the the glor- not quite the glory years, but you had the rebirth under David O'Leary and Peter Ristel when they lived the dream. Now they reached the semi-finals of the Champions League. They reached the final of the Europa League, sort of back to back, and then had the, the the decline, the full financial fallout in these sort of twenty years. But now they're back, and it's not just. I don't think there's an expectation that they're there just to survive, just to finish seventeenth. Yep, they would love to remain in the Premier League and all means necessary. But you don't. If you're going to go up with you know Biasla, with all of the expectation of Ellen Road and the ownership. There's an expectation that before long, you will be in the top half of the, the table. And then you have Blackburns. Naturally, you, you would have to have one of the, the winners of the Premier League in there. I know they've had struggles over the last few years since the you know, relegations of six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years ago. 
even they've had a second life. They won the title in 94. They had, you know, 94, 95, had a few years of sort of upper mid-table. And then, you know, the collapse in relegation. But then they, you know, quite quickly came back up. And they had a second life, you know, finishing in the top ten. You know, they won the 2002 League Cup against Spurs. And so they've had, you know... You know, two separate moments of glory, two separate periods where they were successful. You know, it took a few years of finishing second and third before they finally toppled United in ninety four, ninety five, and the period of time under you know Graham Souness when they had Dwight York and Andy Cole up front, Brad Frieda in goal, you know, two two guy in midfield. There was so much positives about it, you know, and for yeah, they stayed in the league for an extended period of time. So, yeah, maybe out of the list, you know, they're the ones that probably are slightly more vulnerable if they don't get up in the next sort of five, ten years. And really, you don't imagine another benefactor coming in. There's not going to be another Jack Walker. Which really comes down to your last two teams. And, you know, Fulham you have to mention because now they're, they're getting their back up. And, you know, you had that first era under Al Fayed where they had Jean Tiganar, Louis Saha... Edwin van der Sar, and there was a lot of expectation. I don't think there's been, yeah, that was the first time really that you'd had a promoted team, and this was in the early sort of 2000s, when you had this expectation of a promoted team that was people thought were going to, you know, really challenge the, the hierarchy because Al Fire was so flamboyant, he owned Harrods, he was in the media a lot. You know, because Craven Cottage is, you know, you know, West London, it's people enjoy going to that ground, and there's a sense, you know, with the cottage and with you know, the, you know, the Archibald Leach stand, there was there was an element of sort of you know West End glamour about it, and eventually the, you know, they, you know, what goes up must come down, but then when they came back for their second life, you know, you had the the wonders of you know getting to the Europa League final under under Uncle Roy. You had Clint Dempsey, you had beating Juventus, you had this, you know, really, you know, sort of incredible run. And they were, you know, relatively speaking, slightly unlucky in the final against, you know, Atletico Madrid, who were on their own ascension up, you know, to a much higher level than winning the Europa League. You know, two Champions League finals against, you know, Real Madrid in both cases, you know, inches away from winning it and winning the Spanish League under Diego Simeone, El Cholo. And then you have, you know, Middlesbrough. And, I mean, it's interesting that on the, the last two teams on this, both of which have reached Europa League finals. You, know, you have the original Middlesbrough team in 97 that got promoted. And, they, they you know, there was a buzz. Not quite as much as Fulham, but, you know, signing Fabrizio Ravanelli. Fabrizio Ravanelli is the first Premier League player that got us to understand how much players were earning. I don't remember ever hearing in the, the, the you know, three or four years... When I was a kid, when first watching football, anyone talk about wages, and it was for bits of Ravinelli. When they basically the only way the media could I think get the gravity of it, the enormity of it, was to put it in per week. So in other words, maybe you know just under two million pounds. That would have been a big number, but you know there was you know this is the nineties, you know, an economic boom, it wouldn't have quite hit in the same way that 42,000 per week, that was kind of, you know, an upper level yearly wage. And that's why it captured. And that's when people and the media started realising that per week salary was something that, you know, people could be awed about and be interested about 
and it would be a stick to beat someone with if they weren't playing well for it. Now you had Janino, you had Barmby, you had Fabrizio Romanelli. This was someone who we'd seen on TV, on you know, Football Italia on a Sunday afternoon in Champions League finals, and he's playing for Middlesbrough, and they reached two cup finals. Yes, they did get relegated, and I suppose semantically you could argue that really they weren't relegated on the field, they were relegated because they effectively called off one of their games due to a flu outbreak, and the league you know, knocked three points off. That three points would have taken them to safety. So in other words, all of these teams in the Second Life team, they understand that relegation is a, a fact of life. You know, with... But when things go right... They can go right big. You can win things. You can get to finals. You can finish in the top ten. You can qualify for Europe. You know, Newcastle have you know, been in the Champions League, have competed for the league. Leicester have won the league. You know, Aston Villa in the early 90s and even a little bit in sort of 80, 98, 99 had runs at, you know, at the league. You know, Leeds that had chances, at try- had pretensions to winning the league. Which then really leads us on to the the single life teams and what they are is really they've had they've got into the premier league and they've had one period of success of extended success in other words just getting to the premier league is is an incredible achievement you know there are lots of teams that have been in the premier league you know you could take swindon and bradford and probably bradford is the more interesting one because they actually managed to survive just about managed to survive and had that second season you know, Swindon didn't have a second season, fell apart, you know, financial irregularities, Glenn Hoddle leaving, and generally just got absolutely annihilated, conceded a you know, massive amount of goals, I think it was 90 plus, and have never been anywhere near the Premier League ever since. With Bradford, the joy of staying up, and Geoffrey Richmond thinking that if he put in £10 million, that would then keep them up for an extended period of time didn't work, the, the signings they made didn't work and they fell apart and there's, I was reading an article sort of a couple of weeks ago where someone was really saying that Bradford haven't quite recovered from it you know, you can, you can have your moment in the Premier League and then end up in Division, you know, in League 2, in div, basically of Division 4, you know, Blackpool as well So, but the, but the single life teams they've not had the second life they have the potential of joining them but really what they've had is what you're giving credit for is you've got up, you haven't been a yo-yo team, you had one period of success, but you weren't, it eventually, you went down and you haven't been able to replicate it. And the best team is, is Bolton. You know, They had a couple of, they had times when they qualified, they got into the Premier League and they just went straight down. When they came back under Allardyce, you had these amazing years. You know, They played in Europe, they qualified through their league position. And they got through to the you know League Cup final. They finished sixth. Their highest finish was sixth. And you and he they changed. They played a part in English football modernising. You know the signing of Yuri Jorkai, JJ Akocha, the use of stats, video analysis. You know focusing on you know marginals. You know using statistical analysis to work out you know a little bit. It's, it's sort of I suppose in some way, shape or forms comparable to you know sort of Moneyball. And they were one of the first sides to do it. And the thing is, they had this long extended period of time in the Premier League. And then, you know, once you know, Allardyce left, the that empire started to crumble. And now, you know, Bolton are in all sorts of financial trouble. 
and they don't look like they're coming back anytime soon. And if you take, you know, Palace, they had lots of, you know, they were a yo-yo team. They would always have these odd, you know, in the 90s, the the mid-90s, late 90s, early 2000s. And they would always go straight back down, sometimes closer than others. But generally, there was an expectation that Palace just didn't have the size or the infrastructure or even the history really to compete. They were just an upscale version of Millwall. They were the Millwall that won in the playoffs but weren't able to do much more than that. You know, if you look at it, they've never qualified for Europe. Yes, they've had a cup final defeat. And at the moment, they're really working towards second life team designation. Because this is the first time that they've actually shown that they can stay in the Premier League you know, four or five years in a row. But even now, you look at it, the way how their season finishes, seven defeats in a row and one draw. You know, Uncle Roy is... Aging, do you keep him because you think you can keep he can keep you in the Premier League, or do you try and get rid of him and change the philosophy, which they did with Frank Tabor, lasted three, four games. You know, it's an aging team, the youth setup is only sort of in dribs and drabs developing talent. And so really they've got to now work on that. But, you know, because they you know, although you could argue they have played in Europe, but I'm not counting the 1998 Intertoto Cup. That's a qualifying tournament. I mean, actually being in Europe, you know, even if it's the qualifying, you know, the qualifying tie, that's at least a tournament proper. And with the last two teams, you know, you have Stoke. Because it's Pulis Bourne's impact. You know, the concept of the wet Wednesday night in Stoke, i.e. would Barcelona at their best, would they be able to, ten times out of ten, beat Stoke? Or would at least one of those nights, would it, the wind be howling, it be raining, would they be able to keep up? Or would, at some point would Stoke overpower them? You know, they were cut finalists. This is the lap throws. It was just... It was so interesting and sellable. They were just the, the ideal wrestling heels. They were the Premier League heels for a few years. You had sort of given them grudging admiration for what they did because they always they would do your team eventually. Now, Spurs, generally speaking, got the better of them, but there were times when they gave us a bloody nose. And as frustrating as they could be, you know, with bringing the touchlines in, with the long throws, with some of the you know, rough and ready tackles... It was still something that people, you know, it was a mark of honour when you won away at Stoke. You know, we did about three or four times, and each time it would always be, you. And they were never televised, if I remember correctly, but you'd always be just sitting at your phone pressing the refresh button, because it would always be, we'd be like 2-0 up, and they'd get a late goal, and the last 10 minutes they would have us just absolutely under siege. And, and eventually you'd be exhausted afterwards and slightly exhilarated that you'd been able to, you know, deal with the two big men up front. And they were always big men, but they always had a bit of talent. You know, Ricardo Fuller, Peter Crouch. There was always a touch that they had a slight bit more footballing ability than people gave them credit for. And finally, we reached Sunderland. And in some ways... There's, there's two different reasons for it. You, you have the back-to-back seasons in 1999-2001-2001 when they both finished 7th under Peter Reid. And the first season was probably the more interesting one because you had you know 
Lyle Quinn and Kevin Phillips. And Phillips scored 30 goals in 36 games. And they played some fantastic football. It was a kind of a mix of you know, some experienced players, you know, Kevin Ball, Alex Ray, and a few players who'd been around the football league and had never quite, you know, had their chance. It's all Phillips. You had a veteran in you know, Niall Quinn who proved himself that he, you know, there was an assumption of, okay, well, Quinn did all right in the mid 90s, you know, came for Arsenal, never really played much. Went to Man City, went down with them. And when he came back, he was in you know, the sort of twilight of his career. And there was expectation, well, he's tall, he's you know, a bit awkward, and he wouldn't have success in the Premier League. And for him to, you know, sort of, I think he got something like, it was double figures in goals, and the assists he gave for Phillips, and just how dangerous as a, a partnership they were. I think in a way you also have to give them credit you know, for the run of great escapes. You know, those four or five years when it would always be a different manager, some, you know, half pieced together back of a fag packet you know last minute signings in january and they would somehow always just about survive there'd always be just a slight hope for next season that would then be dashed and you'd be back to square one and there are you know there's some honorable mentions but they're a bigger club and i think it's more meaningful having them in then let's say Wigan, Swansea, Birmingham and Portsmouth. All of these teams, when they're in the Premier League, won trophies. And at various times entertained. I mean, Swansea, there was you know, aesthetic, you know, under you know, Martinez. There was you know, good football with you know, Brendan Rodgers. You know, with Birmingham, they had one season under Bruce where they sort of finished seventh. And the, but that was mainly, you know, they had Joe Hart on loan when he was young and good. And a solid defence and... Yeah, and Portsmouth entertained, you know, with you know Carnu, Crouch, Defoe, Harry Redknapp, even Teddy Sheringham when they first came into Premier League, Shaka Hizam, you know, all of these, you know, interesting players, you know, Cranshaw, and they, you know, they either won the League Cup or they won the FA Cup, but they all are much of a muchness. They all sort of blend into each other. They all have their pluses and their minuses, but in the end. You couldn't choose one over the other. They all have their merits to them. And yet, in the end, they've all played, you know, between 266 Premier League games or 304. It's really all within a season of each other. And there's no longevity, whereby Sunderland have played, you know, almost double the amount of Premier League games, which I think is more, you know, sort of valuable. Which then leads us on to, you know, sort of... What future changes do we see to this list? If this is, you know, if we're going to do this, maybe like a World Cup every four years, I definitely could see Burnley overtaking Stoke. I think that's dependent on whether Sean Dyche stays. I think if Sean Dyche leaves, I think that'd be very difficult to replace him. And to would you keep doing the same things? Would you try and just keep playing at? Which I think is a lot harder. In other words, it, I suppose the principle, if you don't think Sean Dyche is very good, all you'd say is, okay, we'll just get in a younger version of Neil Warnock and they'll do exactly the same and just about keep them up. Maybe not quite as high, maybe you know, sort of between 13th and 15th, so just above kind of the relegation scrap. But I think that's very difficult. I think there's much more to Burnley than sometimes we give them credit for. 
And I think it'll also depend on whether Stoke come back, and that seems at the moment it's possible, but maybe not for four or five years. At which point, if Burnley had then kicked on, because you know Burnley have qualified for Europe before, and uh, you could definitely see, and you know, these are the probable changes. You could definitely see Wolves replacing Bolton because look at the upward trajectory. You know, this is the first time that you know. Wolves really established themselves. Yeah, they've they've had times where they stayed up, but it was almost like, yes, you stayed up, but we're almost certain that the energy from that isn't going to last into the second season, and you'll just go down without a fight the next year. But then, I suppose with the the caveat to that is, is that do they keep hold of Nuno and? Do they keep that relationship with you know, the agents that is allowing them to get some of the players they are from you know, sort of Portugal and and whether Fosen stick around? Because they're spending an awful lot of money, but whether that's sustainable if, let's say, Fosen decide to leave, I think that's the question mark. But at the moment, the expectation would be Bolton aren't coming back to the Premier League anytime soon. You could definitely see if Wolves keep finishing in the top six. Yeah, you'd have to you know, put them into the second live teams and knock Bolton out I suppose the the future changes the possible ones you could imagine Wolves overtake Watford overtaking Sunderland if they can establish them back into the Premier League quickly you know I, I think you know the years you know Watford have got to the you know, FA Cup final and they flirted with European football and some of the you know the Methods. I mean, you might not agree with them, but they did keep Watford in the Premier League longer than a lot of people expected. And I think with Palace, we sort of touched on it a little bit earlier. I think it, them ascending to the second tier status, it's not getting relegated. And I suppose trying to find a way to move towards top 10 status. It always feels like you were sort of... Like this season, when they came out of lockdown, it was like, okay, if you get two or three wins here, if you can build up a bit of form, you've got an outside shot of you know being in the discussion if you know the Europa League drops as low as seventh, and they just fell apart. You know, you've they haven't been able to keep their youth talent. Oh, the Croydon, you know, is an absolute hotbed for football talent, but it's never really benefited Palace that much. Yes, you've had Zaha, yes, you've had Wan-Bissaka. But the thing is, is that Wan-Bissaka has spent basically a year at Palace. Yes, he got them some money, but as soon as he showed any proficiency, he was gone. You know, the same thing you could say with Routledge, you could say the same thing with Victor Moses. The only person that stuck around was Zaha, but that was only after he'd been sold, really before he'd even played a Premier League game for Palace. And then since then, you know, he, they've had... I suppose it's the moral, not quite the moral of the story, but it's be careful what you wish for. In other words, Palace fans wished, I don't want to lose Zaha again. And it was such a joy when he signed that contract, and since then he hasn't played particularly well. He's blatantly miserable, doesn't want to be there. You know, obviously, I think he thought that if he signed this five-year contract, he would have all this money guaranteed, and eventually after a year or two, Palace would then decide to let him go big windfall for Palace, he would then get the back end of his, you know, sort of the peak of his career at a place where he could really kick on to the next level and Palace have said, well no, you've just given us all the leverage, there's no buyout clause, there's no exit if we're going to sell you, we are going to sell you for the idiot money, it's going to be 70, 80 million pounds 
And what Zaha hasn't done is then produced a Bale season, a Ronaldo season, which says, you, yeah, I have to play at another level. He's done lots of years where he's played quite well, but it's been seven goals, maybe five, six, seven assists. And this year it's even worse. It was sort of four league goals, at which point, yes, we all know he's a good player, but I don't personally think that anyone is going to sit there and spend 60, 50, 60 million pounds on a guy that scored four goals. Yeah, I think the fans, you know, you'd have so little rope to use because he's already had that period, you know, with Man United where things didn't work out. It'd be a risky signing. And so I think for with Palace, it's more about, I suppose, finding a sustainable philosophy, being able to utilize, you know, improving their academy and their infrastructure so they can keep the. You know, the benefits of you know being based in Croydon and that the greater you know area and kicking on to that next level which would then you know safely put you into you know second life team tier status so now we then move on to the the larger one the historical football league top 24 division doing that draw there's going to be a certain amount of teams that, you know, match the, the list. That's obvious, self-evident. I'm not going to go through, you know, what Liverpool have done, what Man United. It's a waste of energy and time. It's self-evident. So really, what we come to this list is that there's two, dip, there's two groups. You really have the, the top 14. And that's really based on, it's an expected, it's the teams you expect to be on there. And it's, you know, it's basically a process of history, longevity, you know, size, culture, maybe an element of good fortune in places. So you've got Arsenal, Chelsea, Spurs, you know, and, and we'll do it on geographical levels just to make it a bit more simpler. You know, in the northwest you've got Man City, Man United, Leeds, Liverpool, Everton, and the North East, you've got Newcastle, and then sort of the Midlands area, you know, West Midlands, East Midlands, you've got Villa, Leicester, Wolves, Nottingham Forest, and Derby. You know, all you know, the outfits on this list, you know, they've won leagues, they've all had success in Europe, they've all had recent success, they've had different eras of success. You know, really the only ones that don't quite, that are a little bit left field, a little bit questionable would be, you know, Forrest and Derby. And in some ways you really, for that, you're, it's because you're giving them a Brian Clough size exemption due to his giant role in the history of English football. You know, I mean, even with Forrest and Derby to a lesser extent, they've had some they played a role in the Premier League. You know, you even had Nottingham Forest finish as high as third in in ninety four ninety five, and that, you know next season had a run in UEFA Cup that was brutally brought to an end by Jurgen Klinsmann's Bayern Munich. So I'm going to focus at the beginning on on Derby and Forest. I think with Forest, there's so it's maybe not you know their history before Brian Clough and maybe it's in the history after Brian Clough isn't particularly 
fantastic. You know, they've had relegations from the Premier League. They spent time in League One. You know, for so many years, they've been you know considered a sort of sleeping giant. But you you focus on the undefeated streak. You know, forty two league games without defeat. And that's in an era with awful pitches, small squads. You know, when where by now. 42 games on unbe- league games unbeaten. Well, that, yeah, Liverpool could do that. Man City could do that. Arsenal did that. Man United did similar things. But this was not in an era when that would be expected. When there was a lot, you know, you know, teams were a lot closer together. There wasn't, you know, two or three teams that were much bigger than everybody else. You know, on any given day, anyone could beat anyone. There were strong teams. You didn't have sub. You, know, you literally, you know, were playing fifty, sixty games with sixteen, seventeen, eighteen players at the most, and even those players on the outer edges of between fifteen and eighteen were people that might make two or three appearances. It really was your first team was your first team from day one to game forty two, and if you had two or three injuries, you could be in a huge amount of trouble. You know, if you had a couple of you know suspensions. You had winning back-to-back European Cups. That's the seminal moment. But even after that, you know, they still maintained top-half pretensions, you know, into the early 90s. You know, they won the League Cup in 78, 79, 89, 90. Reached the FA Cup, you know, Big Cup finalists in 91, lost to Spurs. You know, and won the league title. I mean, back-to-back European Cups is a spectacular achievement in whatever era. I mean, the fact that Brian Clough was able to take this second division team, who, you know, they had a you know, romantic name and, you know, a decent stadium next to, you know, the River Trent, but, you know, no one was expecting to have that much of a say for so long. I mean, even when they finished third in 94-95, he'd retired in 93 and they'd, he'd taken them down. Within a season, they got promoted, and that second season, you know, in their first season back up, they finished third. Stan Collymore scored a load of, you know, fantastic goals. There was still such an aura about him, even though he declined as a manager. You know, alcoholism had taken its toll. The generational having been, you know, in management pretty much since the late sixties. But the fact is, there was still something there that basically when Frank Clark, who played under him, took over. They were still able to have one last kind of you know, spurts of success. And even now, the, <laughs> compared to that comparative side, you know, city grounds only about 30,000 capacity, they still had lots of owners. There's still a strong sense that people want Nottingham Forest back. You know, and you know, considering the, sort of the anguish and the shock that you know, Forest dropped out of the playoffs the last you know, 20 minutes of the season this year, you know, I think there would be a lot of happiness if Nottingham Forest came back into the Premier League. So now you, you kind of move to Derby. And the thing is, Derby don't quite have the silverware that Clough delivered Nottingham Forest. But I think they still have a say in the sense that you know, they got promoted in the late 60s. Again, you know, they'd had periods of success, but they were just... Considered a team that were kind of, you know, either a you know, sort of mid-table mainstay in Division 1. They would have some periods in Division 2. That was pretty much, you know, what was expected of Derby. You know, not a huge place, not a huge stadium. And for them to be taken from the doldrums of, you know, really looking over their shoulders at relegation to the 3rd Division. To not just getting promoted, not just surviving, but then, you know finishing you know, within the top six, 
that's already an incredible achievement. To then kick on from that, to then you know, win the league <laughs> under Clough. That was an incredible thing. You know, young, telegenic, you know, charismatic manager. And obviously the inevitable fallout with the board and leaving. But, you know, even you have not just the league win, the fact they got to the semi-finals of the European Cup. Okay, that could have, you could have then said, okay, fine, that was Clough and once he left, you know, it would just be, you know, a slow, gentle decline, regression to the mean, and they'd be back exactly, you know, where they were when he picked them up in the late 60s. And this is the thing that always gets forgotten about, is that actually, you know, his replacement, Dave Mackay, who played under him, great, you know, ex-Tottenham player, ex-Scotland player, he got them to win the league in 75. You know, took them to third place in 73-74. And, and they had success in Europe. You know, They've only ever lost once at home in Europe. And that was you know, four European campaigns in five years. And it's one home defeat to AEK Athens. Who were you know, a mainstay of Europe at the time. You, know, you, you had six successive Premier League seasons. You, know, you had ninth in 97-98. Eighth in 98-99. You know, even and in their second one in the the European Cup, you had this incredible tie with um, Real Madrid. In the home leg, they beat them four one. You know, Derby beating Real Madrid, it's you know, that's an incredible story. They did lose the away leg five one in the Bernabeu. There's always this um, amazing story about this. Is that so? They they go to Madrid. Well, many only a couple of days beforehand, and they spent the day sightseeing before the game. Not training, not you know, they were just they were out there on on a bus tour going around Madrid as if it was a holiday and sort of just rocked up to the Bernabeu and the Bernabeu was a hundred and twenty thousand people in there, and yeah, there's yeah, I think if you re- read into the game more, there was some sense that you know Real Madrid got the benefit of the um, refereeing decisions in that and that you know I think Derby had a disallowed goal, some something of that nature, and that they. It was a. They were almost a little bit unlucky. They were probably too casual going into the game, and probably unlucky when the game actually, you know, took place. I mean, if you look at it in their history, they've had sixty-five years in the the top division, fifty-two in the second, and that's really caveated by the fact that eighteen of the last nineteen years they've been in Division One. You know, they lost the playoff final in two thousand nineteen to to Villa, and they've only had four seasons in the thirties. So that's. 56, basically between 1955 and 1957, a second season they got promoted, and again in the mid-80s, 84 to 86, again promoted. So they're just, they're a, a mainstay team, and I think their history, and not just having the success under Clough, but having the success under Mackay, and coming back in the 90s, I think that's enough to put them in. Even you know, with both Forrest and Derby, at the moment they're just upper... You know, mainstays of the championship, upper end of it. You know, looking at the playoffs on a good year. But I, th- I think their contribution and Brian Clough's contribution, I think you couldn't really sit there and tell the story of English football in the second half of the 20th century and not mention Brian Clough and not mention Derby, not mention Forrest. So I, I think they're deservedly in there. And I suppose the the next sort of controversial one you could argue would be Newcastle. You know, they've won four league titles, but 
effectively, you know, you're talking 1904, 1905, 1906, 1907, 08, 09, again, 19, you know, early 20th century, and 1927. That's not, you know, Sheffield Wednesday have a similar kind of record to that. And, and they've won the FA Cup, you know, sort of, 1910, 24, 32, and three times in the 50s. The 50s with, you know, Jackie and Milburn, I think that is something that plays such a huge role in how people view Newcastle. You know, the idealisation of the Newcastle number nine. You know, the role it played in the Charlton Brothers, who obviously were 1966 and England winning the World Cup. You know, Alan Shearer, uh, Bobby Robson, all of these people were influenced by that kind of team. Yeah, they're, they're discussing more historical than one anything since '69 with the Fairs Cup, but but you ally it with the Keegan years, and it's more valuable than Huddersfield Town. Huddersfield Town, yet they had a great bunch of success in the early twenties with Herbert Chapman, who then moved to Arsenal and followed and had it any you know, absolute the same amount of success, winning league titles. But then since then, what have Huddersfield really done? You know, they had the odd year and, you know, they finally got promoted to the Premier League. But they spent time in League 2, League 1. They just haven't been particularly relevant. Whereby Newcastle, there's always a sense of relevance. When Newcastle goes down, it's massively important. And, you know, there's always an... You know, teams always play up against Newcastle when they're in the Championship. You, know, they, you always get more away fans. So there's a chance to go to a proper Premier League ground playing the team that should be in the Premier League. And that, ins- and I think that's a sign of just how much respect Newcastle were given. And you could argue Wolves again. It's a similar kind of story, but I think for them, again, it's the impact of Stan Collis. He was the manager for you know, sort of late 40s until the early 60s. And they had this sort of incredible team. Uh, they won three leagues, so that's 1954, 58, 59. They were three times runners-up in the 50s. They were probably, you'd have make a decent argument that they were the sort of team of the, the 50s. You had the gold kit, Molyneux, which was a very intimidating ground. And there was, you know, you had Billy Wright, who was the England captain. And, you know, so, that was at the time when you was you have floodlights first started being erected and you had the idea of the midweek friendly and so the first starts that basically the idea that people were thinking of so who's the best team in Europe and having these sort of discussions I think there's a very famous um, friendly that was played between the Hungarian champions I think it was Honved and Wolves in the 50s and Honved in the first half absolutely tear them apart and that's when Hungary was at the zenith you know you had the magical Mayas battering England, first non sort of British Irish team to beat England at Wembley, 6-3. And Wolves in the second half, I think the pitch basically got watered at half time, kind of waterlogged it a little bit. But they still came back in the second half and won. And, you know, at times people were saying that, you know, really they were one of the best teams in Europe and they were kind of the unofficial champions of Europe before really the European Cup started in the later part of the 50s. And even then, you know, you look at their league cups. They won it in seventy four and eighty. They were the you know runners up in the seventy two UEFA Cup final. So, yeah, they won the FA Cup four times, and they've they're all they're considered a proper club. 
Yeah, even when they've had some down times when they've been in, you know, they spent a tiny little bit of time in Division Four in the late eighties. They spent some time in League One in the two two thousands. Had some economic problems, financial problems, but there was always strong support. There was always twenty five, thirty thousand people there. There was this history. You know, in ninety seven, ninety eight, they got through to the FA Cup semi final. There was always this sense that Wolves had so much potential and that's been shown with foes and turning up. In other words, lots of outfits have turned up at Premier League clubs and promised the world, thrown some money at it, and it just not work. And here it has done. You know, the ground, they've been able to rebuild the ground and it's getting full up and you know they've had a European run in a way that Southampton have had European runs and just never got anywhere. They've never got out of the group stages. The first time they played... You know, when they got lost to the cup final to Arsenal, they had new shirts, you know, European shirt, and it lasted one tie. Because they wore the away kit in the, in the away leg at home, went out to a fairly nondescript team, if I can remember at the top of my head. And that was it, whereby when Wolves came back in, they're still in the Europa League, they're still you know, not the favourites, but they're well up there. They definitely have a chance of you know, getting to the quarters, semis, final... Yeah, with you know, you then look at Villa won a European Cup again. The biggest team in the Midlands, the most supported. You know, yes, you could argue that you know they weren't expected to win the league in the yeah, Definitely not expected to win, but just the fact that they got there, won. You know, they finished third in the late eighties under Graham Taylor. They had success with Ron Atkinson, you know, competing for leagues in the early nineties. You know, finished sort of second, third to Manchester United, beat them in the League Cup, beat Leeds in the League Cup, even under under O'Neill and under Brian. They've always had, when Villa are good, they are one of the biggest teams in England. And I think they've definitely earned their status. Yes, they can get relegated, but there's always a sense that it's inevitable that they will come back. They will always be there or thereabouts. So, to complete the sort of top... And then you have Leeds. And I think there's some, something you need to, I suppose, to an outside audience. You might think Leeds, well, you know, you've heard of them. But you might not, I suppose, really understand quite how what they mean. And it's, also, it's cultural as well as achievement. You sometimes forget, with, you know, because with Leeds, it's, you've got the damn United. You've got dirty Leeds, which is... It's a truism. But they were also a fantastic football team. I mean, they were dynastic. I mean, they won the league in 69. They won the league again in 74. They won the FA Cup in 72. The League Cup in 68. But they were five-time runners-up in that period. So in eight years, they were either winning the league or they were finishing second. You know, they got through to the European Cup final in 75 and you know, lost to some very controversial refereeing decisions against Bayern Munich. You know, there was a fame, there was an intimidatory factor to it. It's cu- they're culturally important. You know, you, at Ellen Road, it was, you know, you, for years, it was one of the big and important stadiums. It's now been completely superseded. You know, Ellen Road looks pretty much exactly the same as it did in, in Euro 96, 1995, when you know, Spurs played the FA Cup semi-final there. But for a period of time, that used to be where FA Cup semi-finals, you know, Villa Park, Ellen Road, Old Trafford. You, know, you had the iconic all-white kit. 
and the legacy of that you know still still really applies you know when how Wilkinson you know, the last English manager to win the, the league you know, just before the you know, the start of the Premier League even then the, the idea you know the whole principle of you know Peter Russell spending all that money and all of the the, the chaos and disaster that you know, really lasted for about you know, 22, 23 years before they got relegated from the Premier League. Just the downswing of being a top three, top four team to suddenly losing, having to all of these players, having to just then just scrabble for a couple of years to try and stay up, knowing that the money problems were getting worse and that sooner rather than later they would go down. And then just the 20 years. I mean, that's a huge amount of time. That's basically you know, a generation. I mean, a whole generation of people don't understand. Oh, I'm like, oh, who are Leeds? Yeah, there's going to be some young people who have no concept of Leeds actually being good. Which is incredible, considering the success they had. And the idea was that with Risdale and living the dream under you know, with David O'Leary as manager, was the expectation that Leeds should be in the European Cup. They should be winning leagues. And that they can't, they, they, if they only just, they just spent enough money that it would happen. And they nearly did. They just went too far. You know, as I've said, they had, you know, they got to the UEFA Cup semi-final. And they had that horrible thing. They were playing Galatasaray. A couple of their fans got stabbed before the game. And that really cast a pull over, you know, the semi-final. And it's understandable. They got knocked out. And then they had the Champions League. They got to the semi-final against Valencia. That's when Valencia, the, the old Mestalla, and you know, they got to two different you know, Champions League finals. And you just look at how much the decline and fall, how much coverage it received. You know, doing the Leeds entered the you know, sports lexicon. Now, that is basically if you going to if your owner's gonna to spend too much money, go too far, push it too forward. I've said that but you know, wolves have that potentiality at the moment, you know, having you know, sort of seventy five, eighty percent of your turnover going in wages. You know, and even with Newcastle, I think, but even with Leeds, there was the cup final syndrome. Lower division teams always up their game. You know, and the fact that even when Leeds were in League One and they'd have all this horrible stuff that they had different owners, you know, they were just falling apart at the seams. You would still have 5,000 away fans for a League One game. You know, that would literally be almost in certain places, like almost half the crowd would be Leeds away fans. Just was such the desire to follow Leeds and for them to get back. They'd be in you know, mid-30s capacity in League One. There's always going to be some drop-off. When Man City were in League One, it was late 20s. It wasn't full house every week, but with Leeds, there was that desire. You know, there was the element, even at the lowest ebb, you know, they beat Spurs in the FA Cup. They beat Manchester when they were in League One. They gave Arsenal a tight game. We had to play, we beat them in one of the cup ties, and but that had to go to a replay. You know they were nationally televised. It was the idea that the club, the fans, the players, the desire to redress the balance, even temporary. It's like look, yeah, we can't compete with Manchester United. We're in League One. We've had all of these problems, but on our day, Leeds United will win, and that will just for a moment say. We will be back. We will redress it even temporarily. Just to, you know, just for the principle of what Leeds United stands for. You know, even still having the ability to have a high-profile manager in Biasla. You know, the fact that, you know, having a high-profile owner in um, Andrea Radrizani. The fact is, the conversation was he was having with Kenny Dalglish. He said, well, 
Leeds are a big club and they should be back where they belong. And this, you know, television magnet going, yes, I agree with you, and doing exactly that. So with the top 14, you know, it's Arsenal, it's Chelsea, it's Spurs, the historic teams, Man City, United, Leeds, Liverpool, Everton, Newcastle. They all have added something to English football and how English football is seen on the European stage, on the global stage. Which really leads us in then to the bottom ten. And for that it's more... It's far more centred around capturing the spirit and the soul of English football. And what, and what the narrative capacity of it is to grip us as fans. You know, what essence makes English football so exciting? And that's what you're going to get from the bottom ten. It's the history. It's the unpredictability. The fact that so you know, going through this list, so many of these clubs have had their moments in the sun. Each club is in unique in their own special way. So really, what I'm going to do is sort of give a vignette of each team to really sort of explain what they've achieved, what they've added to English football, and I'm also going to for some of these teams really explain why I've chosen that team over another team. There, there are teams on the, the outer edge. You know, uh, a Blackburn, a Burnley, a Stoke. You know, Sheffield Wednesday, Birmingham. You know, that could easily be in this list. But for me, it's more about imagination. It's not about the size, but it's the legacy that these teams have left English football. Now, not all of these teams have had success in Europe. Some of them have. But it's what they have brought to the domestic scene. And why they have added something unique and interesting to English football. So, I mean, if you take Southampton. We discussed a little bit earlier because they made the Premier League list. I would choose them over Blackburn because Blackburn had some great success in the early part of football, professional football. Lancashire was a hotbed for it. But for such long periods of time, Blackburn have been an irrelevance. They've had some success with Jack Walker, put some money in. Yeah, they came back, and some of that was still kind of the, the, the elements of the Walker largesse. That meant the stadium was there, the training ground was there. There was still money from the trust. And yeah, they had some success, but that was it. Once that money came, sort of, didn't quite run out, but once that had, you know, let's say, imagine it's an oil well and that just went dry. And then they had to get an outside funding with Venkies and the disaster that was. They then just dropped off. Whereby I think if you take Southampton, you know, you have the Letitia years. You, know, you have the sense of an organisation that's had to make changes to be able to survive. You know, they, you know, they used to use the Dell because it was such an awkward place to go to. It was so small, but it was so intense. The fans were on top of you. If you take their, you know, their greatest success was, you know, being a second division team and beating Man United at Wembley under, you know, in 76. You know, McShannon scoring the goal. You know, being league runners-up in 83-84, considering how small the ground was. And finishing sixth in the Premier League in 15-16. You know, they've always had to do things differently, you know, having like a mercurial talent, a, a Matt Letizia. 
having you know, developing homegrown players like Jason Dodd. And utilising some elements of Maverick thought, you know, having Alan Ball as manager. You know, taking Kevin Keegan, you know, in the twilight of his career when he came back from Hamburg. They've always had, you know, and then the changes they've made now with scouting, with getting, you know, blooding fresh managers. They've just done more interesting things in English football than Blackburn have, to my mind. And so let's say you, you, the next one on the list will be West Ham. And I, I always make this joke, you know, about where West Ham fans bang on about how West Ham won the World Cup in 1966 because you had, you know, Bobby Moore, the captain, played for West Ham. You had Martin Peters and Jeff Hurst, who scored the hat-trick. But that is an element of legacy. You know, and West Ham have won the you know, FA Cup in 64, 75 and 1980. And in 80, you know, beating Arsenal, Trevor Brooking header. That was a big deal. West Ham always, you know, perennially, you know, just a level below Arsenal, doing them in a cup final. You know, they were runners up, and they were seconds away from winning that final until Steven Gerrard, on like, you know, half a leg, spanged one in from, you know, thirty. I think it was thirty yards. But always my in my mind, because I remember watching it in my dorm room with my buddy Phil, and it was just such an incredible moment, and you, it just felt like it was from. Not just 30 yards, it was 35. It seems with, with each passing year, it gets a yard further out. You know, they won the European Cup Winners' Cup in 65. They were runners-up in 76. And they finished third in 85-86. They finished fifth in you know, late 90s under Harry Renlap. They've always... They, you, know, you had the West Ham way. They developed such great youth talent. In different eras. You know, you had Ron Greenwood became England manager. There is a sense that there is a West Ham way. And that, you know, it's playing good football. It's, but it's also having a tenacity about them. Yes, they do go down, but they always come back. They're always, they're a mainstay of English football. And they add something. In a way that some of the other teams on this, that who haven't made it, you know, like take a Sheffield Wednesday, who have... You know, more history than West Ham, who won more league titles. You know, West Ham had never won the title. But again, it, they've just underachieved for long periods of time. Whereby West Ham have always been there or thereabouts, either in the second division, trying to get into the first division. Yeah, you know, They've been relegated, but they always come back. And with Sunderland... For me, when you win six league titles, and okay, a lot of those titles were you know, back in the day, pre-Second World War. But even if you take something like Sunderland until I die, just how important that's been globally. You know, the famous win in the 73 Cup Final against the dynastic Leeds team, who we said were all re well, such a winning, tough football team. You know, they're a second division outfit playing the mighty leads and somehow pulling it off. And there's this amazing triple save from the goalkeeper. You can look it up on YouTube. It is just unbelievable that you know that Leeds did absolutely everything to win that final, but they didn't. And they yeah, some of them were able to just overcome that. And yeah, the fact they've been to a, two FA Cup finals while being in the second division. They lost the ninety two final to Liverpool. Even the league, even their doing their struggles in the Premier League, you know, the fact that they got to the League Cup final and no one gave them hope in hell against you know, a really dominant Man City team, 
And they were unlucky to have lost that final in two in two thousand fourteen. <sighs> you know, there's so much potential with Sunderland. When Sunderland get things right, when they have forty two thousand people you know, at the stadium of light, when they have the famous Roker Roar, it adds something to English football. When you have the tie and weird derby. And this really is a derby that basically started between two different monasteries in the 13th century having beef. You know, the Tyne Monastery and the Weir Weir Monastery not getting along and having 700 years plus worth of history and animosity that has grown from that. And is still, even when Sunderland were relegated and far away from Newcastle, when they played Newcastle in the Youth Cup... There was five ten thousand people there, just so that you know the when the Sunderland youth team beat the Newcastle youth team, that was still a big deal. There were still police horses, and that's the game that usually would be attended by maybe a thousand. You know, people would just enjoy youth football, but these were actual hardcore fans who just wanted to beat Newcastle, and any way they could beat Newcastle, that would be it. <laughs> and that's something. That's that passion. You know. How you know the use of Roker Park in the '66 World Cup, and just how seductive! How many owners, how many people, have rocked up and wanted to take something to the next level and spent hundreds of millions of pounds? Yeah, you know, and the fact that there's a global audience. The point is, I can understand you know maybe as a one-off Sunderland to to I die, you know, having some cult appeal. But this is actually mainstream success. You know, people are invested. My missus is invested in how Sunderland are doing, and she's not someone that follows League One football. And my next two choices are, could be construed. I think probably the most controversial would be putting Wimbledon in there. And for me, putting Wimbledon over, let's say, a Burnley. So Burnley have had some historical success. Again, Lancashire hotbed at the dawn of professionalism and they had a visionary of controversial chairman Bob Lord in the 40s, 50s and 60s and 70s a long period, 30 years and he spent money on the training ground on the stadium, on youth development and it had some success they had some period of time in the Division 1 in the early 60s a little bit of success, got to a cup final and lost and eventually just again fell down to league and really had 30 years of being just nowhere near the championship, nowhere near the Premier League, and now they've finally got themselves back, and that's an achievement. But for me, what Wimbledon stand for is that there was no earthly reason in you know. In other words, Burnley, you have history. You've had a situation where you know, like when I think what people forget if you're looking from the outside in is that when Burnley get twenty thousand people, there's literally forty, fifty thousand people. In Burnley, you're really talking a large amount of the actual town are have goes missing in action for two hours and is in one place, and it's not exactly a huge stadium. But Wimbledon, you have the tennis tournament. You you have its lovely, beautiful part of Southwest London. You're only sort of twelve minutes away from London Waterloo in the centre of town, and that's about fifteen minutes journey. Yeah, there's so many you didn't. They didn't need a football team. And if you said in the mid-70s, Wimbledon are going to win the FA Cup in 1988 and beat Liverpool, you'd have been laughed at. They were in the seven division. 
They were literally playing the Metropolitan Police on a weekly level. It is basically four or five notches above park football. And yet, you look at it. Yeah, you had a tiny stadium in Plough Lane, which was really would have been considered deprived for a fourth division club to have then risen up the league. So, I mean, just making it as a football league club was an incredible achievement. Yeah, having had years of just not being, it's just being just it's like any you could pick any team. You could throw a dartboard at the at a map of England, and yeah, there's going to likely be a football team. And just none of them get to where Wimbledon did. You know, you they lost their ground, so they had to spend years of exile in Selhurst Park. The thing is, even if they got to the Division One for one season, you know, like Carlisle did in the late seventies, mid seventies, that's an achievement. But they stayed there. They stayed there for the best part of twenty five years. That's that's an insane insanity. Half of those years playing in exile. You know, the difference between. South West London and South East London, it, there's not a direct train. So basically, you're talking about, you, know, you go to Wimbledon, Earlsfield, Clapham Junction, you then have to cross over and get a different train line, which is basically, you can get a fast train, but there are some slow trains, and it's Clapham Junction that takes you to East Croydon. East Croydon is still a oh, bus ride away, maybe a half hour, 45 minute walk. That's not an easy journey to do. And so they had small crowds, but they still stayed in the Premier League and Division 1. And not only that, they were successful. They were finishing the top half. They got through to League Cup semi-finals, FA Cup quarter-finals, FA Cup semi-finals. You, know, you had the crazy ground. In other words, the only way you were going to be successful was to have this never-say-die attitude. You know, the famous thing after they beat in Liverpool. So the first time that a penalty had been missed in the Cup final. First time a goalkeeper had been captain. And the commentator, I think it was Motson, goes, you know, the crazy gang have beaten the culture club. It was an, um, such an amazing story. It's a miracle situation. A team playing the Met Police 13 years later that beats Liverpool, who'd been dynastic for not just... You know, we talk about dynastic with Leeds, and that was really about ten, you know, 8, 9, 10 years. Liverpool were dynastic for about 30 years. I mean, that's a vertiginous rise. And you had to succeed at so many different levels with so many different barriers. In other words, it, to get from the lower leagues, the Southern League, the, the conference, to then go up from Divisions 3, sorry, Division 4, Division 3, Division 2, Division 1, to stay in Division 1, and you know, have players like Dennis White, who spent you know, 10 plus years at Chelsea. You know, Vinnie Jones, who played for Sheffield United, Leeds United, played for Wales international level. Wise played for England. Uh, Dave Besson played for England. Laurie Sanchez played for Northern Ireland. You know, John Fashioning played for England. To have internationals, to have developed players that went on and had fantastic careers elsewhere. So that alone would put you, you know, on the list, even if it wasn't for a long period of time. You know, Stoke have had a much longer history, but have they done anything? Anywhere near as interesting as Wimbledon. The fact that eventually, finally, after all this time, all these battles, you know, they got moved to Milton Keynes, which then birthed an even more amazing story that they just basically formed their own park team and starting from the even lower than the original Wimbledon. They didn't have a ground, they didn't have a name, they didn't have any history. 
They didn't have any money. They were just fans who were pissed off that they had lost their club. And now they then went all the way through the leagues, back this same journey again, and now are building a stadium back in Wimbledon. You know, like 400 yards from Plough Lane, their original spiritual home, and they're in League One. They are two good seasons away from being back in the Premier League. That, that's amazing. You have to, if you want to explain how amazing English football can be, the point is that in all the Wimbledon thing, this isn't like Palmer who had Parmalat. You had an internationally famous cheese company from the local area that helped you know that helped the company, that helped the area. It was a mutually beneficial. There really wasn't a huge amount of money ever thrown into Wimbledon. And just to have that belief, those fans who cared that much, I think you have to put them in. You know, everybody else had a head start. Everybody else in who could have been on this list. It's like, yeah, we've been there 100 years. We've always had a level of success. Like, Derby have always been, you know, basically in the top two divisions. Wimbledon didn't have any of that. They had no history and to have made that success. That, that's just, to me, is just an amazing story in so many different ways. And it's so rich and compelling. And another one that people might argue about would be, like, QPR. And maybe they're not quite... They're a Wimbledon-esque kind of story. You know, the point is, they share their catchment range with Fulham. Who were bigger, older. You had Chelsea. You had Brentford. You had a cramped stadium in Loftus Road, you know, middle of East, middle of West London, near TV shoot, television shows for the BBC. You know their highest attendance ever is thirty five thousand, which is tiny for the era and for the stadium. If you ever look at Loftus Road, you know it's sort of an aerial shot. And yet, you know, in as of the late sixties, they were a third division outfit. They were just another stop off place, you know bit bigger than Barnet, but, you know, in all of that thing, you know, Aldershot, all of those sort of places, Farnborough, Dotterham, maybe a bit closer into London, but, you know, much smaller than, you know, Watford. And yet, they have this rise through the division. So in 1967, they win Division 3. That's not, yeah, that's an achievement, congratulations. They also got to the League Cup final as a third division outfit while also going for pressure. They basically did, did a double. And yet, they were playing 1st Division West Bromwich Albion, who again could be could have been on this list and didn't quite make it. And West Brom went 2-0 up. So imagine this, you're 3rd Division outfit, you're at Wembley, big day, you're 2-0 down to a quality, high-level 1st Division team. They went and won the game 3-2. That's an incredible story. You know, and then, not just, so they got promoted to Division 2, they then got promoted to the 1st Division. And within a few years of that, they finished a point behind Liverpool. Literally, they finished their season the week before Liverpool due to there was some postponements back in those days. You wouldn't necessarily have what we have now, which was a standard monolithic last game of the season. And they they literally were top. Liverpool had to win their last game to finish at a point above QPR. And that is, you know, two points for a win, one for a draw in that era. And that's incredible. You know, in finish up as runs up in seventies. That's less than ten years after being a third division outfit. Now they qualify for Europe in seventy five, seventy six. They reach the quarterfinals in you know of UEFA Cup in seventy six, seventy seven. They were cup finalists against Spurs in eighty two. They finished fifth in nineteen eighty eight, and in nine in sorry in seventy eight and seventy nine. They finished fifth in the original year of the Premier League. So basically, in three consecutive decades, they were finishing in the top five, considering their size. 
you know, and even in the, the last couple of years in the Premier League in the nineties, they finished ninth in ninety four. They finished eighth in ninety six. That's an incredible thing for such a small club. They spent a couple of years in the Premier League. They keep they keep getting up when everything about them. These are team. This is a team that keeps finishing above Derby, Forest, who are much bigger, much bigger catchment range, much bigger stadiums, much better history. And yet they always seem to find a way. So really, you've had several decades where they have done something. So in other words, they at one point they did almost sort of back to back, you know, game project from League One Championship then into the Premier League. They're entertainers. They've created some brilliant players. You know, Stan Bowles, Jerry Francis, Les Ferdinand. They've done so much for English football. You know, they've, and they've all, when they've been in Division 1, they've always added something. They've always had some level of success. You get some teams that have kind of been there or thereabouts in, in Division 1, but they just don't ever... You know, they might have the odd season in 30 years where they might finish 6. This isn't an outfit that keeps on fighting all against all odds to do something interesting, to play good football, and to then succeed. Which is, again, leads me on to sort of Watford, another sort of similar sort of story. Now, they were a fourth division team in the you know, late 60s, early 70s. Again, a provincial football team, you know, not a million miles different from QPR, like you know, Barnets. There was no expectation they'd have a huge amount of success. They, they hired a manager... Uh, Graham Taylor, who had had virtually you know, low-level football career, taken Lincoln from the th- fourth division to the third, and someone hired him. Took them from the fourth division to the first in a matter of years. And halfway through that, Elton John, the pop star, the internationally world-famous pop star, who's from the local area, who's a massive football fan, massive Watford fan, says, I'm going you know, to take this football club over. And not only just gets them into the first division. They were FA Cup runners-up in 84. They finished second in 82-83. And that's it for five years. You know, they created John Barnes. Went on and was a mainstay of the, the last great Liverpool team. Dominant Liverpool team. You know, that under Dalgleish. You had Luther Blissett who went and played for AC Milan. You know, for year, in the mid-80s, they played some... Uh, it was maybe Route 1 football, but for a team that had no history to have had that level of success. You know, and eventually, Graham Taylor took, you know, left the job, went to Aston Villa, and then went to the England job. Okay, so Watford eventually... You know, once that that axis had broken up out and John sold the club, and they fell on some hard times, they eventually got relegated out of the first division and actually got relegated into what we now call League One. So they're in the third tier. So what happens? They Elton John buys the club, brings back Graham Taylor, and they get promoted from not just the second division to the first, and then into the Premier League. In literally three or four seasons, he'd managed to take, do exactly the same thing that he did in the, late se- in the 70s, in the late 90s, early 2000s. That's incredible. That's incredible. The same people, again, just... Joining up, different years, different generation, different situation, doing exactly the same thing. And now you have another, you know, the Pozzo family, who've now, again, so Watford were a little bit yo-yo, kept on going, having a great season, getting promoted, I mean, just nowhere. The first season they finished bottom, they did beat 
Liverpool at Anfield. That, yeah, that was their kind of highlight. Again, another you know, first year uni, so 2005, they, were, they won the playoffs. They beat Leeds 3-0 in the final, which was, again, a massive upset. Because that would have been Leeds of three years earlier, been in the Champions League semi-finals. And yet the Pozzo family have now managed a situation where, you know, Watford got to a cup final, had you know, mid-table finishes, and have only just been relegated. The first time, really, since the 80s, that they were back regularly. And the expectation wasn't that they were supposed to be relegated. This was the first year where they weren't supposed to go down, and they have done. But that's still an incredible thing, that you have that level of, of story and that narrative kind of purpose. Which I think deserves being on the list. I think in in achieving that, in, in adding so much in terms of young players, in terms of just the, the hope that that gives, that if you get the right owner and the right manager, anything is possible. Anything at all is possible. Which now really leads us to the sort of the last four teams on the list. And this is probably the, the one that I probably could most... I suppose, if I had to take one team off the list, it, it would probably be Portsmouth. You know, with Portsmouth, you've got... They won Division 1 in 49 and 50, so back-to-back -back seasons. You know, they won the FA Cup in 39, they won in 2008, runners-up in the FA Cup in 2010. They're a historic outfit. You know, you have the Pompey Chimes, you have the Pompey Political Party... I can't go into the entireties of the story. You can look it up online. And basically, their fans felt they were getting a harsh deal from the council. So a couple of the more, you know, interesting and eclectic members of their fan base decided we're going to form our own political party and actually, you know, got thousands of votes. And it's that kind of passion. You know, you have the Pompey Chimes, you have the the love that Portsmouth have for their club. And you know, in some ways the success they've had, you know, under Milan, Mandaric getting back, you know, even in ninety they got to the FA Cup semi final, lost on penalties. I think there's something about them in the same way that I think they've overachieved. And I think the joy that they gave us in those Premier League seasons and the historic success they've had, and the rivalry with Southampton, the idea, and it's really, and this is a great thing about that rivalry, is that it's the rivalries that basically, Portsmouth is a naval dockyard, a Royal Naval dockyard, whereby Southampton as a dockyard is commercial. So the idea is, is that basically there's more coin in Southampton, it's you know, nicer, and as a result, Portsmouth, and there's always been that battle, you know, I suppose that rivalry, and that's really spilled over into, you know, it's been rechanneled into the, you know, South Coast derby. So to me, I think Portsmouth has overachieved where uh, Sheffield Wednesday have underachieved. You know, Sheffield Wednesday, yeah, they won the League Cup in 91, they had a spell in the Premier League, but since they got relegated from the Premier League in 1999, They've been nowhere. They've got to a playoff final, but more often than not, they've been lowered mid-table in Division One. And you think, well, they've got Hillsborough, and that's you know forty thousand seater stadium. They have this great history, and yet Portsmouth with their Fratton Park, which is again just as historical, but a lot smaller, twenty thousand can't really develop it. And yet they've had these moments, these great players. You know when they have Robert Prosenetsky, 
you know, this the great you know, Croatian playmaker. Spent a year playing for them in Division One and actually just ruined Division One. And you know, the you know, beating AC Milan in the Europa League. I think there's something so romantic about this football club that just seems to always have moments. Every sort of ten, fifteen years they seem to be able to find a way to achieve beyond anyone's expectation. When they first got promoted, people you know, they had some older players who, you know, like Tim Sherwood, they had Teddy Sheringham, Shaka Hislop, who'd all been in the league a few years. And really they worked they weren't expected to survive. And they did. And then they st- went and got even better, got some younger players through it. And I think it's this is more probably a, a heart versus head decision for me personally, but that's why I've put them in. Which then leads us to Ipswich and Norwich. Now the point is, is that you can definitely make an argument that West Bromwich Albion and Birmingham City are much bigger clubs who've had, I think, much more success in terms of being in Division 1 and have more potentiality. I think when you look at Norwich to begin with, you know, they won the League Cup in 62 and 85. They were runners-up twice more in 73 against Spurs in 75. When Norwich and Ipswich play well, the sky is the limit. You know, Norwich finished third in the Premier League under Mike Walker. They qualified for the UEFA Cup. And they were probably the predominant team in, I think it was 92-93, that really competed with Manchester United for when Man United first won the Premier League, first Premier League. You know, they were top at Christmas. And no one expected that. No one in a million years thought Little Norwich, who had been kind of, you know, a yo-yo club, would ever have that level of success. And to have kept up the whole thing. They, they ran out of gas. They didn't have the same squad depth that United have. And, but the thing is, and then they had this fantastic European UEFA Cup run. They beat Vitesse Arnhem of Holland. They beat Bayern Munich. And, but they beat Bayern Munich in the Olympic Stadium. You think of all the list of English football clubs that have played against Bayern Munich and none of them have beaten Bayern Munich in the Olympic Stadium, but it's Norwich City. I mean, they, they lost narrowly in that ground to Inter Milan. This was a good Inter Milan team. And even this season, if you look at Norwich this season, they weren't supposed to get promoted. They were supposed to be basically, the, you know, the year before. They were supposed to be low in mid-table, possibly even because they were inexperienced and the manager was inexperienced. There was a thought they might go back to League One. And yet they won promotion playing brilliant football. And this season, even though they are hopelessly overmatched, they haven't spent the money, some of the football that they have played has been impressive. You know, you've had... You you look at how many people from that team, three out of the back four, are wanted by massive teams. Despite having received, like, what, 75 goals? They play football the right way. So that when they succeed, they do develop players. You know, Chris Sutton, Rob Green, Dean Ashton. They've had you know Tim Sherwood to a lesser extent, who've gone on and had international careers and gone on and done bigger and better things. And there's something to be said for that. They are an advert for when English football gets it right. And the same thing for you know Ipswich. Yeah, they're they're perennial you know east you know east of England rivals. Point is with Ipswich, you know when they won the league title over the you know Spurs in the. 62 season. And this was a, a Tottenham team that won the double 
the year before, which you know hadn't been done in the twenty hadn't been done since Preston in the back end of the nineteenth century. Yeah, that was incredible. They were in a team that got through to the European Cup semi-finals, narrowly lost to you know Benfica. Question marks over the refereeing. You know, and they weren't expected to win the title. They were considered, you know, again, a backwater outfit. But under Alf Ramsey, they won the title. And that's the Alf Ramsey that led England to the World Cup in 66. You know, they had back-to-back runners-up finishes in the early 80s. Again, under future England manager Boy Rosson, who took England to the semi-finals in Italian 90. You know, they won the UEFA Cup. Even in you know, the last great season they ever had, they were newly promoted and they finished fifth in the Premier League and qualified for Europe. Again, no one expected it of them. The point is, is that they've developed two great England managers. They've developed some great football. They've won FA Cups. They've won in Europe. When Ipswich do things right, they play brilliant football and find brilliant players. Paul Mariner. You know, they, they made the signings of... Um, Arnold Muren and Franz Tiers and the Dutch midfielders who added such quality. You had John Wall. Just a whole list of great players. Yes, they haven't been in the top division you know, for best part of 20 years. But, again, what they've added compared to their size, both Norwich and Ipswich, is worth more than your West Brom, who've had a great histories in Birmingham City. That's fine. You know, they Birmingham City won the 2011... League Cup against Arsenal. West Bromwich Albion have had much more years in the Premier League. They've just got promoted again. Then Ipswich have. But I think Ipswich for what they stand for, the purity, the same thing with Norwich City, I think is larger than just actually going on size and saying, well, West Brom haven't, you know, have always been there or they're about the same thing with Birmingham. You know, they're a fantastic advert for what the English Football League stands for when that you can get great football, and that that football can be rewarded by English football as a whole. So now we finally get to the last team on the list. And I think there's a symbolic meaning to this. In other words, but before I get to that team, I've decided I'm going to have a 25th team. They're not in the league, but if this was in our magical thinking... If this was just for one season and the next season someone would get promoted, that team would be West Bromwich Albion. Because, to my mind, West Brom in its modern guise, where it's been most successful and most dangerous, is when they're stalking promotion. Then the predominantly sort of stodgy Premier League team that they have needed to be to survive. So I think that's where a great place to put West Brom. Because, yeah, they have this history and they've won things in the past. You've had Jeff Astle, Boing Boing Baggies, you know, the Hawthorns. There is the iconic kit. You could put them on this list. You you could put them over a couple of different teams. But I think, in terms of thinking more on the modern basis, I think where they're best is on, on the road to promotion. And, yeah, I think you could put you know, again, honourable mentions for you know, Stoke, Blackburn, Burnley. Yeah, they 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 all have their merits and a place. But you know, there's no shame in not being one of the top twenty four teams. Those teams have have histories and they have something to offer. But I don't think they've offered 
enough you know imagination i don't think they've captured they 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 are part of english football but they are not standouts in other words blackburn burnley stoke sheffield wednesday sheffield united you know, any other team i forgot if i've forgotten your team off the list they're all much in the same way they all have the same pluses and minuses i think what these 24 teams mean is they stand out in their own unique individual way they have their own idiosyncratic way of success, which is what makes the fabric of English football. So the final team, the team who are just struggling to stay in the league, is Coventry. Because they had this period of time where they basically spent 33 years in the top flight, unbroken. So that's from the late 60s until the early 2000s. If you think the differentiation between 1967 and 2000, it's just light years away. And that's it. It was a struggle to maintain First Division and then latterly Premier League status. You had Jimmy Hill as manager, as chairman, you know, making Highfield Road all-seater decades before it was mandatory. You know, and their, 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 their moment in the sun when they beat Spurs 3-2 in the 87 Cup Final. This was a Spurs that had never lost a Cup Final. You know, they'd won the FA Cup final in 81, won in 82. They'd won the UEFA Cup in 84. You know, they'd had this great cup tradition. On the day they were expected to, you know, they were expected to win. Coventry was just low in mid-table, just happy to be there. And the fact that all the, all the Spurs players, they'd just been on, they were on the pitch. And it was just for them, that was normal. That's usually what happened more often than not. They'd end this, they'd play a set-piece game at Wembley. And for them, for Coventry, it's like, this is our one shot at it. And I think that's what makes that win so magical for them. How all of these different managers, in their own way, had to, you know, through increasingly sort of tight feats of escapology, to just to keep them there. In other words, you can keep, you know, you can have a great manager, you know, like a Graham Taylor, keep you there for five, six years. Then he leaves and it all kind of, Falls apart, but with Coventry, they were somehow always found a way. You know, my my, my favourite one was when Gordon Strachan played himself, and this was, and at this point, Gordon Strachan was about forty. He'd been a great player for United in the eighties and Leeds in the, the early nineties, and notionally he was playing match, but he hadn't played himself in year, couple of years at least. And the last game of the season at Spurs, they have to win to survive. Even if they win, if the results go their way, they're still going down. And he just said, look, I'm going to play myself in centre mid. You haven't played for months. You've been managing. You've had all this stress. And he somehow managed to sort of gut out. And they won 3-2 and survived. It's by any means necessary. You know, they had to salvage plays. You know, Dion Dublin had success. Cambridge been bought by United. Barely played. Went to Coventry. Managed to then get to play for England and then Villa. You know, same thing with Gary McAllister. You know, Leeds got rid of him thinking he was done. He was 30. That was the end of his career. Three or four years at Coventry, keeping them up, playing some beautiful stuff, you know, scoring 10 goals from midfield. He then gets a second, you know, lease of life, you know, had a couple of years, you know, at Liverpool. And, you know, Stephen Gerrard would always sit next to him on the bus. That was how important Gary McAllister was. And that's the thing. This is what you, I think, the importance of this exercise is. is to show you just how important, how vital it is to be a part of 
the top division. That's what it is. You call it Premier League, you call it Division 1, but it's the top division. It is where things matter. It's the allure. It's having no... And that's why relegation is so awful. Because you lose that glamour. Even if you... you know The difference between the Championship and the Premier League You've still got big teams, you've still got good stadiums, you're still on TV, you're still on Sky, you're still... But it's just that badge of honour. And what these 20 teams in the Premier League history, and what these 24 teams, have all added to that allure. And that's what makes English football so popular and so captivating. Thank you for listening.